welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg, Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins us from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal and well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, good to speak to you. I'm very good to speak to you again, Karen. We're now on level one lockdown in South Africa, just as Europe and parts of the UK are having to impose stricter measures as infection rates rise. The US President Donald Trump and his wife have fallen foul to the coronavirus, with both having tested positive in recent days. And many other countries around the region like Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire and Uganda are gearing up for elections. Yes, and while other elections are now routine, Cote d'Ivoire's elections at the month's end are of particular concern because they pit the same belligerents that were the cause of the country's civil war against each other. And there is a risk that they will be marred in violence at best. And, and at worst, it may ignite again bouts of conflict. But on the upside of what's been remarkable through this period of COVID shutdown have been the number of actual significant business deals that have been done in the last months. Most notable, a series of Nigerian banks have acquired Kenyan banks and Kenyan banks themselves, which are really only emerging from particular difficulties, are expanding into the broader region. And so we've seen Kenyan banks uh, expand their footprint into neighbouring DRC. That is interesting. That really is interesting. And I didn't really think of Kenya as an exporter of financial services, but it, of course, makes complete sense. Big up for intra-Africa trade. (laughs) Well, Tara, we'll be hearing from a guest we spoke to at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in Africa, Professor Alex Broadbent from the University of Johannesburg, who argued back in, what was it, April? that a one-size-fits-all response to COVID-19 will not work. We'll be asking him to share his observations six months on. But first, let's take a look at the stories which have been dominating the news since our last podcast. President Trump says he is prepared to go ahead next week with the second televised debate against his Democratic rival Joe Biden, despite his treatment for COVID. Just before doctors gave their update, Donald Trump took to Twitter to tell people that he was feeling great, better than he did. There's growing international pressure for a ceasefire in the conflict over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region in the Caucasus. Uh, France, Russia and the US are all calling for a halt in fighting between Armenian and Azerbaijan Seven people accused of looting millions from the VBS mutual bank to face additional charges. Mozambique is turning to the European Union for help to stop attacks by ISIL-linked groups in its northern region. The president wants the EU to train its forces to battle armed groups which emerged three years ago in Cabo Delgado. Since then, the fighters have stepped up the violence, seizing important towns and targeting the military. So, Tara, one of the stories that receives significant coverage is the historic peace deal signed in Sudan on the 31st of August. It's been referred to as the Juba Agreement, which seems to be the most promising sign yet of ending a series of protracted conflicts, including Darfur in the west of the country, as well as conflicts in South Kordofan and Blue Nile regions, which deal with unresolved issues from the civil war, which started back in the 80s. Now, Sudan's had its fair share of false dawns, let's be honest, But there are ripples of excitement about this deal, aren't there, Tara? Yes, I really think this is a historic deal and it it deserves much more attention than it's getting. 
And I think what makes it different is that it isn't a deal between enemies. You know, it's not ending a conflict between two counterparties. This is the deal between Sudan's new traditional transitional government and political interests and militia groups that fought in their different ways and to different extents to overthrow what one of my colleagues close to the talks calls 30 years of Islamist tyranny. And that is the tyranny by the military-backed Islamist regime that was led by Omar al-Bashir. And the deal should be seen in the context of that, uh, of the 2019 peaceful rolling protests that were led by Sudan's youth, and notably uh, many among them uh, women activists. You're right, it's a government committed to democratic transition. It's got three years to go until it holds elections. And it's promised more inclusivity, keeping all parties on side and managing to balance so many different interests. But I'm wondering if we're going to see more political brinkmanship once the international attention on Sudan wanes. Seems to me that it's going to be so hard to try and satisfy so many different interests. I spent so much time, as I'm sure you have done, Tara, waiting in back rooms for announcements, waiting for deals to be signed. In fact, my first story in Africa was the rebel leader, the late John Garang, signing a peace deal on a bitterly cold Navasha evening in Kenya. He, of course, was killed in a dubious air crash many years ago, with conspiracies still abound. So I guess that's why I'm a bit sceptical and a bit long in the tooth. We're always right to be sceptical. And there is another factor in this, and that is Sudan uh, has lost a third of its oil revenues. Oil revenues are at an all-time low. Oil prices are at an all-time low. And the economy in Sudan is really in a bad shape. Very high inflation, all the factors of instability, which internally could also cause problems. But it's a very important step to reuniting uh, Sudan. But I think what makes it me more optimistic, and I am a natural optimist in these things, I have to say, is the determination of the new Sudanese leadership, this young generation, this new lot of leaders, to get a deal. It, their determination has been remarkable. The negotiators have been in a hotel in Juba, in South Sudan, apparently without water, with water carried in, uh, and with a nighttime curfew for nearly a year to secure this deal. Now, you and I know when these negotiations, it's often quite party time uh, for negotiators, and there hasn't been that, there's been a seriousness about this that I think is quite new. Also, one of the things that is interesting, and so many of the analysts have been saying, is that this deal is very much a deal with Sudanese buy-in in the broader sense of the term. It's not an international deal that's being imposed on Sudan, is it? Let's move on to Nigeria, Tara, your favourite country in the region. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And also my pet love of constitutions. This week marked Nigeria's 60th uh, birthday as an independent country. And it's worth remembering that Nigeria's constitution is one where power is split, like America's, very much in the news at the moment, between federal and state governments. And now this rather obscure story of a state's election in where the governor, Godwin Obaseki, has won uh, crucial elections in Edo State. And this election is really seen as a state victory against the 
a federal government, a collapsing federal government. And does that have any impact eventually at federal level? Because basically, I guess that's where it counts, isn't it? You have a lot of power in one state, but in terms of changing the whole system? It absolutely has. Now, Lagos has led the way. Now, Lagos State is traditionally the richest state in the country. And it, many years, for many years, has been governed by, it was governed by op- uh, by an opposition government. And it, but, and because it was opposition, this federal government refused to give it money. So what did it do? It reformed and it started reforming its, its own tax revenue system, because you can have state taxes as well as federal taxes, like the American system. And suddenly, uh, Nigeria's state was able to act independently of the federal government. And that is the direction of travel, uh, that states are beginning to exercise their own power to generate revenues, to develop locally, to really start to do things um, and to compete for outside investment. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Well, as we said at the start of this podcast, we had the return of a guest who made an appearance on The Ark Insider right at the start of the coronavirus pandemic in Africa. Professor Alex Broadbench from the University of Johannesburg, who studies the philosophy of epidemiology, was making the case that a one-size-fits-all response to the global pandemic would be devastating for the African continent, given the fragility of many of the economies and the level of development and grinding poverty here. Now, six months later, has his view changed? Professor Alex Broadbent, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's an interesting time. South Africa has just opened its borders to international travel. Businesses are slowly returning to normal after one of the toughest lockdown responses to COVID-19 in the world. And we've got the summer setting in. The hope is now that we may not see the second wave in the same way that other countries have experienced it. Although, as I say that, the Western Cape is hunkering down, fearing that it could see a surge in cases. By and large, what have you made of the response? Well, it's not done too badly in terms of the number of co- uh, coronavirus cases. Um, I think it's done quite badly in terms of the way the country has um, uh, weathered the larger storm. Um, the major impact uh, has been and will continue to be um, the impact of the measures that were taken to uh, avoid the, the, the virus. Uh, and the sad thing from my perspective is that that impact was very, very predictable. And also, in my view, the, the, there's no evidence to suggest that the lockdown actually changed the, the course of the ep- epidemic in the country. Can I ask you, though, Alex, one of the biggest problems is lack of health data. So we don't really know what the effect has been, do we? Neither do we know what the effect could have been if President Ramaphosa hadn't taken the really drastic action that he did. I've just had a paper published in uh, Global Epidemiology on this. And if you look at the way the epidemic spread uh, through the country. It's a straight line, if you plot it on a logarithmic graph, um, from about the 27th of, uh, uh, of March, which is the day we locked down, through to uh, around the middle of level three. So what's that, like uh, around the 24th or 29th or so, mid- middle end of July, and then it starts to taper off. So it's a straight line, and, and we locked down, of course, on the 27th, but that can't be why there was a, a, a decline in the angle there, obviously, because that would have had to a couple of weeks to take effect. Um, and since that, we, we stayed in hard lockdown for five weeks and then we were level four. And each time we changed the regulations, 
there wasn't a dose response relationship. It wasn't like more contact meant um, more transmission. So it's, it, I'm not saying it definitely didn't make a difference, but the the common narrative that it um, we, we locked down, you know, just in time and uh, it, it delayed everything. I mean, there's actually no reason to think that narrative is true. It's clear that the health system was overwhelmed uh, at, the, at the height. So it, it, I'm not at all sure what was actually done during the lockdown. You know, I have been unable to get data. I've asked for data. I've looked for data. We've, we've tried to get data. There isn't the, the government is not giving out data on causes of death, nor on um, uh, what was actually done in, ho- in the hospital system. The hospitals were overwhelmed. People were being turned away um, for either with COVID or without COVID. Um, we know that, but then things declined anyway. The pandemic peaked anyway. There's a good history in pop in public health of you know pandemics running their course, and in medicine generally, of diseases running their course and then just turning of their own accord, and people sort of think it's something they've done. I very much think that's what's happened here, and it, you know it, it it turned of its own accord. Um, if it was because of something we've done, then it doesn't under, you don't it doesn't not clear why it happened while we were in level three rather than level five. Yes, but it is starting to get a bit warmer. It's not getting warmer. Yeah, look, I mean, people are looking at the climactic. Uh, I mean, there's there's a research. Um, uh, there is a research whole research program on that, um, uh, and I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm, people are still looking at it, um, but it, it could it could be something to do with that. It could be just that there's just. I mean, the fact is there's just lots we don't understand about this disease, as with viruses in general, about the way it spreads. And I think the big question for science. If it's going to take more of an interest in the global south, it's going to be, you know, what actually did happen in Africa? What was what was the reason for the different courses? Um, well, broadly similar course of the pandemic in the different countries, despite their different regimes. Um, and what does that tell us about viruses and about uh, viruses, how we respond to viruses in low resource settings where a lockdown is not going to be effective because of how people live, because they're too overcrowded? One of the critical things, if we go back to another virus that really badly affected um, Southern Africa, and that's the HIV virus. One of the big problems with that was communicating the message. I mean, I think part of, was it not an absolutely essential part of the lockdown is to rapidly communicate behavioral change uh, to match up to this, uh, to, the, to this virus, because in the past it has been a big failure. I don't think lockdown is an appropriate communication tool. I don't think you can justify a lockdown. I mean, imagine if we are locked down to prevent the spread of HIV. You know, it would equally have been effective, presumably. You know, <laughs> but that's not a justification for locking down. <laughs> but if there hadn't have been the response, as Tara's saying, that, you know, look, this is serious and we need to clamp down hard. Oh, no, there needs to be a response to a situation like this. The question is, what is the response? So the... the I mean, on, on the HIV question, um, there are two things. One is that communication it isn't necessarily the right way to think about it. So on H, I mean, HIV, some work on HIV, in fact, by um, uh, uh, Abdul Karim, the, the very famous epidemiologist in South Africa, won him the Nobel Prize, is actually part of what I cite in support of what I'm saying about coronavirus. Because what they did, he and his wife, was they went to KwaZulu, rural KwaZulu-Natal and they looked at how people lived um, to work out what the correct intervention was to reduce the spread of the virus. And, you know, this was well after the invention of condoms. You know, telling people to use condoms is a public health intervention and it's not the right one for rural KwaZulu-Natal for a number of reasons. The coupling patterns are such that usually, you know, infections peak 
25 in men and 15 in women. That means that uh, there's a massive power differential. You have migrant workers, you know, the women know when they're going to be uh, sleeping with their husbands. Uh, it's, you know, once a month, they're not going to take a pill every day. And for these reasons, you, you know, condoms and daily pills aren't effective at preventing, um, uh, aren't effective at preventing the spread of HIV, um, even though they are effective in an obvious sense. In, in, and instead, they came up with some other interventions and so forth. And that, that was a major part in the, uh, you know, taking the social context into account is a major part of their work with the, with, with, with the prevention and the transmission of HIV. So it's absolutely correct that you need a, um, a, a social context uh, to have an effective um, intervention. What you don't, uh, I think, and I think that's the, the, what, what you don't have with lockdown. So, so lockdown was, a, was something that didn't take the context into account. I suppose in a way, my point is really, and my question is really about here we have an ANC that was severely criticised for its lack of response to HIV. And it's in a political context more than the actual epidemiology context. That, uh, that, that this a very, and from, from my perspective, actually having lived through lockdown in the UK, what you had in South Africa, we didn't have, which was an extremely clear five, four, three, two, one uh, outline of what um, the stages, a crisis management plan, if you like. And from my perspective as a crisis manager, the, the, the actual, uh, the communication of that has been exceptional, of what each stage means and how we move from a, you know, from five, four, three, two to one. Uh, and then transferring that to local lockdowns as well, 54321, is, is a very clear direction of travel for ordinary people. Yeah, so that's true. Had they, had they done what they said they were going to do, it's true that they would have been communicating clearly about it. In fact, communication was a weak point because you had different ministers saying different things at different times. You had variations in regulations during a level. Um, you had a kind of, uh, there was like lockdown three star or two star, like, you know, you had halfway measures and stuff. So it's, it's very, it's very, yeah, it's the story of South Africa, you know, good on paper. And then it, and then in the implementation, it fell down. But I agree with you. That's right. They, they did, they did have what looked like a clear plan. Um, it wasn't, however, rationally communicated. So that, 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 I mean, and I think this is also what South Africa did is it locked down in, in a sense, it, it's like it knew, uh, it's like we know how to do that. We'll send the, the, the tanks into the townships and everyone has to stay home and we beat them up otherwise. So there was a real sense in, to, to me that, that it was like, right, this is, uh, this, we got this. We know how to do this without any real rhyme or reason to, to the actual content of the regulations. You know, no exercise, um, banning of sales, cigarettes, and then, you know, very obvious corruption. And it, it, it disintegrated into irrationality. So it, the, 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 it depends how it depends a little how you look at it um on the communication point i do want to say though that um uh trust is very important so in a in any public health context and they eroded their trust very fast they had good trust initially because initially they just locked down they said look we don't know what this is we're locking down three weeks let's let's get our act together and um that was widely applauded but as elsewhere i think on the basis that it was a kind of interim measure and and then it unraveled so um, you don't build trust through a lockdown and you can't, of course, communicate if you don't have trust as well. 
Alex, can we look at Africa as a whole? It's interesting we have a country like Kenya that didn't lock down. It took a much more pragmatic approach. I've been looking at the figures, 39,427 cases, 731 deaths. They made a decision to keep trading, to have curfews, restrictions. Yes, there were huge human rights issues that went with that. But do you think that would have been a better way to go? For yes, for sure. Um, th th there's two reasons for that. Firstly, the cost, well, I suppose three, is the cost, there's the benefits, and there's the feasibility. So the, the cost of a lockdown in a country like, uh, like South Africa or like much of sub-Saharan Africa is just too great. Um, in, and and it, this is not a, some sort of like right versus left thing. Uh, you know, I get accused of being like Donald Trump or something. It's, I'm not saying, oh, we got to care about the economy because I want money. It's, it, it, this means health. It help, the economy means health in, in sub-Saharan Africa. It, yeah, you, you, we, we, we'll get more people dying. What I'm saying is you'll get more people dying through the lockdown approach than you do through the non-lockdown approach. Alex, I know you're a scientist, you're not a politician, but what about some alternative strategies then? Tell me, we're sitting in Cyril Ramaphosa's office. You're coming to pitch to me at the start of the pandemic. What would you say to me as president of South Africa? I put a report out from the, the Institute of the Future of Knowledge, put a report out uh, called the Framework for Decisions in a, po a Post-COVID World. Uh, in May, I think, very in May, where we said, uh, we said this is what we think you ought to be doing, and we suggested basically a, a, a mitigation strategy rather than a suppression strategy. So my my approach would have been, look, you're good, you're not going to suppress this here, um, and that is, I think, true. It's evident that that was correct. I think that it, the evidence to say that was there at the time. Uh, you're not going to suppress it here. You've got to work out how you can best balance the the threat to people's lives from COVID to the threat to people's lives from the other things that are already threatened people's lives and will do so more if you act too hard. Um, and I, I, that's what I would, that's, that's what I would have said. And, and what I would specifically have said, I, I put, I put together this sort of decision tool, very simple decision tool that would basically enable the weighing up of the, of, of, of different policy priorities and to weigh them up and say, this is how we're making our decisions about what to do. The reason for that being, again, communication, coming back to Tara's point, I mean, part of the big difficulty is um, explaining why uh, one what, 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 what it's doing, what, what, it, what, what it's doing, which is essential in a public health context. And um, uh, I think only through doing something like that would it have been possible, I think, for, uh, for, for South Africa to resist probably very large international pressure as well. Um, I'm not saying, by the way, that nothing should have been done. And I think this is very unfortunate as well. There's this kind of, it's boom or bust, not boom or bust, it's, it's all or nothing, lockdown or bust. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that, that, you know, that, that just ignores the massive qualitative differences between the different parts of the world and the way people live. Um, there might be things you can do in South Africa that you can't do in, in England. Yes. I mean, I'm very interested, again, in in you know the outside imposing a slightly you know that there is there was pressure on the uh, the model that was handed to south africa um you know the answer was test track trace and treat you know that isolate and treat and how quickly to get to that and um since we spoke you know we've had a little look at the who and I wonder what you think about in the post-COVID world where institutions like the WHO go. I think the World Health Organization is in a very difficult 
position. What got me interested in this in the first place was how um, univocal their advice was. Uh, they said, what you have to do is socially distance. And my immediate thought was, what do they say about South Africa or, or Africa in general, where for many people that's not just not possible? Um, and uh, the answer was, well, nothing. Um, and I do think they have to, you know, there's, there's a reason that they do that, that they're very, very wary of specific advice for specific countries because they could easily uh, get into political hot water for that. On the other hand, the fact is, they go, you know, there needs to be contextual specificity. And I know there is sensitivity to that in parts of the World Health Organization. On the other hand, I think they've frankly been a bit irresponsible in, you know, some of what they've said. I mean, they, you know, you still get them praising South Africa's decisive action, even when it's just not clear that there's any evidence. Alex, you're doing some really interesting research on excess deaths, aren't you? I know it's a dreadful term. But what you're looking at the deaths that happened because people didn't die with coronavirus, but they died as a result of maybe not being able to get into hospital. Can you give us an example of what sort of things you're seeing? Yeah, anecdotally, you, you, obviously, you, you know, there are cases where people get turned away from hospital with something and then die. Um, so those deaths that happen could be attributable to COVID-19 in the sense that the hospitals were full of people with COVID-19. Um, we do. We suspect that's probably a large part of what's going on at this stage. There are, however, malnutrition cases as well, um, and that's also a, a large thing. The trouble is, it's extremely hard to disaggregate if the hospitals aren't going to tell you what, uh, you know, what the causes of death are. And and I I think um, you know that that's a real difficulty. How are you supposed to deal with that? We we we're trying some various other approaches as well, and. You know, we're trying to sort of get clever with social media and web scraping and so forth. But, there's a, the, the, you know, to, there's a limit to what you can reliably infer from, uh, f f f you know, about the sort of the hard underlying deaths. Um, but we are, yeah, we, we're trying to estimate that. And we're trying to do the same thing in Uganda as well. We're part of a project um, that's sort of across continents and then also in, a, in India um, and in Thailand. Well, I'm sure you've listened to uh, podcasts uh, two to... 2 to 16, where you will be aware that our wrap-up question is, what have you learnt about yourself and what sort of what has been your personal response to COVID-19 and to the pandemic crisis? Obviously, you are specialised in this, but I was wondering what, what personal things uh, you might have uh, acknowledged or seen. Well, I think... Uh... Uh, I think the value of having an office where one doesn't have one's children around one's feet has been th hammered home to me. Um, no, I, I mean, it, it's, it's I, I just, I mean, for me, what's very strange is that um, is how both nations and people seem to forget what they, um, uh, what they in theory know in moments of crisis. I've seen very, very eminent authorities on causal inference saying, Sometimes all you need for causal inference is time trend data. Uh, you know, I've seen countries that prize, you know, theoretically prizing liberty, you know, taking it away. You see people who say they believe in evidence basing, not, you know, then turn around and not doing evidence basing. You see, you know, countries like South Africa starting strongly and then losing their way. You see America doing a kind of a very sort of American response. Britain does a very British response. I mean, the interesting thing for me, perhaps, is that uh, how, you know, with all these, you know, these, this supposedly the same crisis, we experience it in very different ways. And it, it kind of brings out 
it just you know brings out each of our own individual and collective um, idiosyncrasies. Alex, thanks very much indeed. It's really nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much and best of luck with your research. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team produces a daily chronology as well as monthly country reports from the region, which you can subscribe to. For more on that and on this podcast, you can go to info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do let us know. You can use the same email address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.